Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. This is our Christmas service, and at Harvest, this is the main thing we do at Christmas time. We don't have a Christmas Eve service. We don't have a Christmas Day service. So I'm going to really invite you to use this occasion to frame your heart on what is most important at Christmas. The title of the message this morning is Light of the World. Light of the World. And Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb, and I don't know if you realize just how much of a difference this made in human life. But the electric light bulb was a huge, huge development for human beings. And that happened in 1879. By 1880, his associate, Edward Johnson, developed the first set of Christmas lights. So almost as soon as electric lights were invented, people thought, let's string these things up around a Christmas tree, and that's an actual photo of the display he put together. And by 1900, you could actually buy a set of 16 Christmas lights. This is an actual photo of one you could buy around 1900. It cost $12 back then, which is equivalent in today's money of about $350 for 16 lights, but it was a big deal. And because in the past, in order to light your Christmas tree... You don't have to hang candles on the tree. You can see why that would be a fire hazard, especially because you know that uh, pine trees dry out real fast. And so these really caught on, and people started getting them cheaper and cheaper. And now, today in America, an estimated 150 million sets of electric Christmas tree lights are sold every year. I think most of them end up in Diker Heights, Brooklyn. I don't know if you guys have heard of this neighborhood. It is quite possibly the most decorated neighborhood in America. The neighbors spend thousands of dollars planned for months in order to compete with and outdo each other. And it's become a tourist attraction for millions. I mean, they just come through. There's cops everywhere. They're directing traffic. It is a spectacle to behold. This is the home of maybe one of the most famous guys. His name is Sammy the Greek. And his house is famous. It looks like some kind of casino. I don't know what's going on there, but you, you get the idea that, that people have taken this thing of lights and they've gone all the way with it. And Diker Heights, Brooklyn, is really probably one of the greatest examples of just going way, way, way extra with Christmas lights. Now, we in the Northern Hemisphere, we have shorter days in winter. I checked, and today, sunset, do you know what time the sun's going to set today? I mean... If you have seasonal affective disorder, this is a hard time of year because the sun's going to set at 4.25 p.m. today. If kids had school, the sun would set almost as soon as they got out. That's depressing. And so because we have such short days and long nights in winter, I think we, especially in this part of the world, appreciate the appearance of all these lights at Christmas time. 
It's been a weird year in my neighborhood because we had this really cold weather right around Thanksgiving time. And so nobody in my neighborhood hung Christmas lights. Normally, you'd see them start coming up, but it, it, it really was slow and happening. And it was kind of depressing in the neighborhood, driving in and seeing like one house here, one house there. Little by little, they started coming online. I eventually got ours up. But really, it's a weird year, and I, I didn't realize what a difference it makes for me to see lights this time of year. Now, Christmas lights are more than just festive decorations. They point to something. Even when they were using candles on the trees, Christmas lights pointed to a truth that at Christmas, what we celebrate and what we remember is that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, entered into a world that was steeped in darkness. I don't know if you've seen this photograph before, but this is a NASA composite photo taken from space. Um, I, I don't know if we can kill maybe one of the, the front row of lights here. So you can see this, but this is a, this is a um, photograph <clears throat> taken from space of the Earth at night. And it shows you where the population centers are. You can see that, right? Where all the lights are. That's where people live. And I, I just remember thinking, even though we feel like we fill the Earth, this photo reminds me how much of the Earth is totally steeped in darkness at night. I'd say there's more darkness in the world than light, even though we have these cities lit up from space. And it's, that's just a physical reminder for me that as much as we try to light the world, the truth is darkness is actually what dominates in the world that we live in. The beginning of the 20th century, there was this runaway optimism that marked humanity. People were so absolutely confident that in the 1900s, everything was going to get better. We're going to fix all of it. Technology was on the rise. There were some major breakthroughs. Governments were talking about world councils, United Nations, things like that. There's this idea that we're all going to come together, band together, and we're going to solve all of humanity's problems. Disease would be conquered. Peace on earth would be established. Well, it wasn't very soon after the start of the 20th century that that hope was proved to be very short-lived, very naive. The 1900s saw some of the worst of humanity on display. Over the course of that century, over 100 million people were killed in wars. Half of them were civilians, not even in combat. We saw some of the worst possible expressions of human darkness show up in the world around us in the last century. And then Y2K, do you remember the optimism that marked the turn of the millennium? We thought, surely the internet will fix everything. We couldn't do it before because we didn't have the means. And we thought that by the turn of the millennium, everything was going to get better. How are you guys feeling so far about the 2000s? Yeah, right. So <laughs> if you were seriously optimistic, one of the things, I'm not trying to be a doom and gloom guy. I think some things have gotten really great. But the truth is, we keep looking to ourselves to light the world. We keep looking to ourselves to fix humanity's problems, to find some hope. And the truth is, we can't. We've proven over and over through history that the hope for humanity does not lie in humanity. We try. We try very earnestly. But we cannot save ourselves. I don't think you have to look at history only, though. If you look at your own life, almost every person I've ever met and really talked with will share with me there is pain and loss woven throughout their story. 
How many people do you know who cannot tell you a story of genuine pain and loss? In fact, John Orberg once wrote a book, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. And uh, that book is interesting, but the title really grabbed me. <clears throat> because there are so many people, and you probably experience this at church, you meet them on Sunday, you say hi, you say bye, and you think, oh, there's a totally average middle-class suburbanite. But when you get to know people, it's shocking to me how many people you think you know until you really let them share their story, and you are blown away by the amount of pain that most people carry around. How much the darkness of the world has touched just about every person you know. And some people, it's touched them way more than you can imagine. It's one of the reasons I think that pastors' hearts stay soft is because we are given a front row seat to hear the stories of the pain woven into people's stories. It, it humbles us. It makes us realize that this world is not as happy as it appears Darkness has touched just about everyone you know. And if that's not dark enough for you, just take a long look in the mirror. I was sharing with some people this past week that one of the, the practices I've done recently at my personal retreats was, you know, I was talking about self-awareness and really knowing myself. And I realized that I sometimes find it uncomfortable to hold eye contact with other people when I'm talking to them. Raise your hand if you find that difficult, where you can maybe make glances, but sustained eye contact the whole time you're in a conversation. Is that uncomfortable for any of you? Yeah, that's right. It, it was for me, too. I find myself often talking to someone, like staring at a point on the wall. And so I thought, maybe, what would it be like to make eye contact with myself? So at my last four personal retreats, I've spent half an hour staring at the mirror, unbroken eye contact with myself. And I got to tell you, the first time I did it, I almost lost my mind. I actually almost had like a, like a psychological break. It was so disturbing to do it. And I realized I haven't really taken a look at myself. And it was really awkward to, to stare and say, there's a person in there, and he, I thought I knew him because I was him. But I've started to really break through some barriers of self-awareness just through this simple exercise. And as I looked at my reflection and I stared into my own eyes, one of the things that I was really dismayed to discover, I was horrified at what I am capable of. What I'm capable of thinking and feeling, and saying, and doing. And because I'm a pastor, I keep most of that darkness very quiet. But it's there. When I'm really honest with myself and I stare, I'm shocked at how much darkness is right in here. And it made me realize that the darkness I complain about in the world around me, in the people around me, it really is not something foreign to me. I'm also a carrier of the darkness that darkens the whole world. All that is in me too. And I don't share this to depress you on Christmas. <laughs> I share it to make the point that if you've ever tried to deny the fundamental darkness of our world, I want to tell you that's naive. The world is dark. And it's dark largely in part because we're dark. And so there was this great, great relief 
that came when about 750 years before the time of Jesus, a man named Isaiah made a prophecy that Pastor Frank alluded to this morning in the call to worship. In Isaiah 9-2, he says these words of future promise. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Especially in wintertime, because I, I get up at the same time pretty much every morning, and the first thing I do when I roll out of bed is I walk my dog. <clears throat> if you've ever been awake early enough to see the sunrise, it's a powerful thing to watch the sun dawn on a new day. Some of you have not awakened before the sun rose in so long, you have no idea. You just wake up and it's annoyingly bright, but watching the sun come up and watching it, the sky turn orange and pink and red and just this fiery and then yellow and then it's daylight. It does something to the human heart. And, and so it's an unmistakable picture. The reason he uses that imagery is because everybody who's ever watched the sunrise knows what a great sense of hope comes with the dawning of the sun every new day. It's a wonderful imagery of hope. And he's saying this world that is so filled with darkness, you cannot deny how dark the world is. And yet he says that by God's hand, in this world of darkness, a light will dawn. It won't dawn from within the earth. It won't come from us. It will come from outside of us, but will dawn upon us. What's more amazing, if you read a few verses down, this is what Pastor Frank read this morning. He shocks his hearers, his readers, by telling them that this light will not come in the form of an idea or a philosophy or a worldview or an organization. This light would come in the form of a baby. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The light of the world will not be a a mindset, an attitude, a worldview, a philosophy. The light of the world will be a person, and he will come to us as a baby, and he will be a man who is also God. Though that was 750 years before the time of Jesus, in Matthew 4.16, Jesus reveals that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. This was the most important prophecy given to Israel because it promised that a savior would one day come that would alleviate the darkness in the world. You'd have to be a person with your head in the sand to deny the darkness of the world. And the hope that came from hearing that one day light would dawn, that was tremendous. But God made the world wait a very long time. And 750 years later, Jesus announced to all those around him, I am the one who was promised. Isaiah 9-2, that familiar verse followed by Isaiah 9-6, was talking about me. He leaves no doubt that he himself was the promised light that would come to the world. So you can imagine that first Christmas night when the angels appeared to some shepherds outside of Bethlehem, and they announced to these simple shepherds, do not be afraid. 
I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. This baby born on Christmas was a fulfillment of a promise God made 750 years earlier. And if you've ever wondered if God keeps his promises, it may not happen in the blink of an eye as we wish. But Christmas is a reminder that God is faithful. His promises can be trusted. And patience is required. Faith is required to see the hand of God in our lives. I think that's probably a powerful word for some of us this morning who have come to church wondering if God could be trusted, if it's foolish to believe, to wait, to hope. On that first Christmas, that was the message of the angels to these shepherds, that it's not foolish to wait for God that into a world steeped in darkness on that first Christmas, a light had come into the world. I want to invite the acapella team to come back up, and as you think about that, I'm going to invite them to sing a song. And sometimes, when a long-awaited event finally happens, one example I can think of is a graduation, another is a wedding, or the birth of a child, there is usually so much frenzied activity surrounding the arrival of a long-awaited event. And sometimes, no matter how long we've waited, the power of the moment is lost because we don't take a little time to dwell on the significance of what that moment represents in our lives. So as these folks sing, I want to invite you to think about what the first Christmas represented. That God kept his promise and that in a world steeped in darkness, a light had risen. I think it's really important that when a long-awaited thing comes, we pause and we process. Most of us fly through life experiencing or enduring the things that happen, and they just have glancing blows on our hearts. It's so important that we pause and think about what each of these important events means to us personally. The Apostle John, in the opening of his gospel, reveals some really important things about this light which Jesus brings into the world. And one of the things he teaches is that this light is greater than the darkness that is everywhere. You know, sometimes this darkness that seems so thick in the world, the darkness that is represented by cultures or power structures or authorities that seem so powerful, there is no way we're going to change this. Have you ever come across a problem in society so great? I mean, here's one that has often made me feel hopeless, is when the first iPhone came out, I felt so excited. I was among the first in line to buy one, and I thought, this is beautiful. It's going to be so convenient. I am so thankful at how many ways it's made life easier for us. Do you remember the days when you used to have to make plans to meet people, and now it's just, just text me when you get there. So it has made things a little easier, but I grieve at how it's also ruined so much of human life. 
how I see people at a family gathering and all 10 people in the room are staring at a screen and not at each other. And yet there are times when I see the problem, the addiction in me, in the people around me, and it's so ubiquitous, I think maybe (laughs) that ship has already left the port. Maybe there's nothing we can do to change it. Movies like Screen Agents come out and everybody seems to be writing a book about the deleterious effects of phones on society. And yet, no matter what we read, we can't put those things down. And there are times when I see something that simple, that low-lying, and I think, we can't even fix that. So what are we going to do about the 21 million people living in forced labor, modern slavery today? About the 15 million women living in forced marriages That's still today. What are we going to do about all these huge problems in our society? We can't even fix our addiction to a phone. And sometimes you think, how on earth does anything ever change? Think about what it felt like to live under some of these oppressive dictators' regimes. Where a corrupt human being had power over your life or death. And human life meant nothing to them. It was cheap. And how discouraging it felt. And when you would gather in secret rooms and whisper to each other, we got to do something about this guy. we got to change this government. Think about how hopeless that seemed in those moments. I'm amazed as I read history how often major revolutions, the overthrowing of seemingly powerful governments, trace their roots back to one individual or one small group of people who truly believed that change was possible. What John is revealing about the light Jesus brings is that no matter how thick and impenetrable the darkness seems, no matter how much it seems like the darkness is winning, a light has come into the world through Jesus that that darkness cannot smother. What John is saying is a powerful logical reminder that darkness is not a thing unto itself. Darkness is just the absence of light. You can't walk in a room and turn on the dark. If you've ever tried to use a projector at a a summer camp in a room with no curtains, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If only we could make it darker. I just said that earlier. I wish you could see this slide. And the only way to do it was to turn off the light. I couldn't turn on the dark switch. Do you guys, anybody have a dark switch in their house? Darkness is not a substance. It's not a thing. It is simply the absence of light. I once had the experience in another country of being inside of a vast arena after it was emptied out, closed to the public, and all the lights were off. I don't know if you've ever been in a space that large indoors where it was inky blackness. I mean, the kind of dark where I was holding up my hand and I couldn't see it in front of my own eyes. And then my friend said, now wait just a moment. He walked to the other side of this arena, and he took out this little pen light. You know those little um, LED keychain lights with the little button? You push it, and the little tiny pinprick of light comes on. And he flashed that thing from the other side of this vast room, and immediately I saw it. Immediately. And what I realized from that little experiment is that it doesn't matter how thick the darkness seems to be that fills an entire space. It cannot smother even the tiniest pinprick of true light. 
That's how every major change in the brokenness of our world has happened. Is that somehow people believed that the darkness doesn't have to win. And prior to Jesus, that was just wishful thinking. But in Christ, a real source of light has entered the world. You can look at a broken relationship, a broken family, a ruined business, a corrupt government. You can look at the ruins of your own career or your own physical body and think, what hope is there at this point? And the arrival of Jesus on Christmas is a reminder that as long as God lives, it is not foolish to hope. It is not foolish to believe. I want to remind you that the light that Jesus brings is not a mindset or a belief system or a philosophy. It's not a structure like the church. The light which Jesus brings is the life which Jesus brings. Look at what it says. In him was life. The darkness in the world doesn't come just through wrong ideas. It comes through spiritual deadness of the human soul. We are dead inside apart from Christ. And it's that deadness that spreads the stench of darkness everywhere. And what he says is it's the life which Jesus brings that brings along with it the light which Jesus brings. I've seen so many people try to change the world through an idea, an ideology, a platform, some kind of worldview. You cannot change the world with just ideas. Ideas have no inherent power apart from a source of real power to change anything. And it's the deadness of the human spirit that has to be fixed first. And so he says that only through an encounter with the living God where the deadness in me comes to life again can there also be suddenly in my own life a light which I can carry To light up the world. If you skip that step and try to light up your world with just your light, it might shine bright for about an hour. But we're like battery-powered things. You leave it on, it will die eventually. I want to tell you a story. About a month, maybe a month and a half ago, Elder Chris and I, with our wives, we went to Seattle to visit a friend. And we did something called squidding. We, we searched on the internet, what do you do in Seattle this time of year? And everywhere popped up, squidding, squidding, squidding. And then our friend said, yeah, let's go squidding. Like, what is this? Turns out it's exactly what it sounds like. You're going fishing for squid. And you use this weird little octopus-looking jig. It's got eight hooks, no barb. And it's, it's attached to a little lure. And you put two of them on a line, and you throw it into the water. And you bob it up and down, and eventually you catch squid. Or so I thought, in theory. We're out there in the freezing cold for an hour off the pier in Seattle, catching nothing. Chris actually caught something. He's, he's like a squid whisperer. <laughs> I thought I knew how to fish, but I was getting so frustrated. And it was clear to the guy next to me that I was getting a little frustrated. I kept casting. I'm like, what am I doing wrong? I'm much better at casting than Chris was, but he's much better at catching squid. Finally... The Vietnamese gentleman next to me couldn't take it anymore. He goes, hey, hey, you, you have to hold the lure next to the light first to charge it. 
See, squid are not attracted to, this is just a plastic piece of bait. They are not attracted to the bait, they're attracted to the light. And these lures are glow-in-the-dark plastic. What do you know about glow-in-the-dark plastic? It doesn't generate its own light. Before it will glow, you have to hold it to a light source. So what we had done is, my friend David, he's a crazy man, he had taken this giant bank of LED searchlights, he'd strung them together, and we'd pointed them down into the water so that the squid in the murky depths would see it and go, oh, what is that? They would start rising. But that wasn't enough. The lure itself has to glow. And mine was getting thrown in dark every single time because that's why you catch nothing. Your lure is dark. Hold it to the light. So that's what I did. For about 10 minutes, I just held that lure in front of the spotlights. And then I cast. And I finally caught my first squid. (laughs) Now, I was picturing, like, something out of a Godzilla movie, this giant squid. It's this little, one bite's done. (laughs) They're delicious. We ate some of them just raw, and some of them we cooked. We caught a bunch that night. They were delicious. It's going to be one of my favorite memories of life. And all the difference it made was I needed to soak, to glow against a real source of light. You know, Matthew 5, Jesus says something important to his followers. He says, you, it's not just me that's the light. You are also the light of the world. You are also the light of the world. But it's important how we hear that because many people have heard that as there's light in me and I'm going to shine it out to the world. It does not work that way. I think that we are very much spiritually speaking like glow-in-the-dark plastic. We don't generate our own light. But when we are exposed to the true light, something happens in us. Something is stored, deposited in us. And when then we walk away from that light, there is still a glow. Do you remember the stories of Moses coming down from the mountain where he got the Ten Commandments? And they said, bro, you got something on your face. It's a shining halo of light. It's freaking us out. He goes, oh, I didn't even notice. That's what happens when you're in the presence of God. This light which Jesus brings into the world and which he then says to us in commissioning, you also are the light of the world. It doesn't happen through human niceness, through generosity. It isn't just us changing the world. You cannot sustain that level of kindness, optimism, generosity just from within yourself. Haven't you felt that? How many of you have gone into something like Christmas going, that's it, finally, this year, we're going to have the ultimate family Christmas. I prepared everything. And then one after another, you encounter bad attitudes in your family members. You're like, forget it. I give up. No more Christmas for us. And you become the Christmas Nazi because you're like, listen, I had all these hopes to light up our family this Christmas. I tried everything, but I couldn't change people's hearts. We try so hard to light our world, but without a real source of light, we're going to be singing pleasant songs to dead people. We ourselves will find in time that we also have died. When Jesus calls us the light of the world, it's an invitation to spend time soaking his light into our soul. Apart from that, we are not going to bear his light into our dark world. I love...
the words of Acts 14, of 4.13, because I think this really captures this idea of how people become change agents in the world. These simple men, blue-collar workers, had appeared before the highest ruling council of Judaism. And when they began to make their arguments, these educated rulers were amazed at what these simple men were saying. And they observed that when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The change we're going to make in our world will be directly proportional to the time we spend with Jesus being changed. You can always tell when you're with someone who has been with Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's strange because you talk to them and there's a peace, there's a steadiness, there's a depth, there's a, a joy, a love, a kindness, a gentleness. When a person has really been with Jesus, I'm not talking about frantically or in some disciplined fashion going through my religious rigor. Reading, reading, praying, praying. I'm talking about actually using those activities to stay in the presence of our Savior. When a person has done that, something irrepressible happens to them. And you can always tell when you're with someone who has been with Jesus. Amen? You know what I'm talking about? And when you find that everywhere you go, people are disrupted by your presence, feel a little off kilter when you're around. That's not something that says you are, you're a bad person, you're an angry person, you're a negative person. It's not a critique of your nature because we are all of that nature. It's a reminder to you, pause, spend time with Jesus. Let his light light up your darkness. Soak him in and leave his presence. You will be changed. The only way that you and I are going to light up our world is if we first go to Jesus and spend time soaking in his life and in his light. And when that happens, something profound in us will change. You will then become that person who will look at the darkness that seems to smother our world like a blanket and you will say change is possible. God isn't finished. This marriage is not done. That child can still be rescued. This business can still be saved. I'm not talking about prediction of outcomes. I'm talking about the rising of real hope. The willingness to say I'm not going to feel foolish believing again. I'm not going to protect my heart by being pessimistic. Instead, I'm going to acknowledge that the Christ I have just been with reminds me that in him, light, a great light, has dawned on a people living in darkness. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. I don't know where the darkness is in your life that feels like it's ready to smother you, 
For some of us, it's a grief over a terrible loss. And no matter how many months have passed, we can't seem to quite get over it, move on with our lives. Some of us, there's been a betrayal. Maybe some of us feel stuck living in a situation where I hate what it is. I long for it to be different. I wish I were different. But no matter what I've tried, nothing seems to change. We've had a few good days, a few good weeks, but it's not lasting. And when you feel that despair rising, it is a reminder to us who follow Jesus that that probably tells us we need to spend more time with the light of the world. Because at that moment, what we're seeing is the darkness and it's starting to discourage us and blind our eyes. Remember what we said earlier, in no matter how vast the darkness, even a pinprick of light can pierce through all of it. One small ray of genuine hope and faith in Christ can cut through all the smothering darkness of a lost and hopeless situation. I hope you hear me, because I really want to be speaking from the heart and not making a speech this morning. Some of us need to remember this morning that these aren't just fine words. There is real hope in Jesus. And I, I understand that sometimes when you look clearly at your life, hope wants to die. It feels foolish to hope. I've been there. I know some of you are right there, right now. I believe this Christmas, God wants to tell you fresh. The hope you have in your heart to face the life beyond this one is the same hope he's given you to face this life. Darkness doesn't have to win. The light of the world has come. I want to invite you to take a moment with me and just pause, because sometimes it's so passive to listen to a sermon. This is a time where you get to participate actively in the sermon. What I'm going to invite you to do is think about this past year and the places and times where it felt like the dark is winning. Maybe it's not so close to home. Maybe for you, it's what's happening in our government, what's happening in our culture. Maybe some of you, it is very close to home. But I want you to think back this year to the times when hope wanted to die, when you felt like it was smarter to just quit, when it felt stupid to keep saying, I believe. And I want you to think about what difference God intends to make in your life right now as he reminds you what Jesus represents when he enters your life. And maybe this morning, what God wanted to remind you of, so for some of us, it's been a really long time since we've just truly been with Jesus, really been with him in a way that profoundly marks us and makes us different inside and out. And if it's been a while for you, maybe that's the reminder that you have to pray into and receive from him. So I want to give us a moment of quiet just to be with him 
right now in the quiet of this place. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.